0: Big data. In much of the developed world, it can refer to the analysis of vast quantities of information to search for valuable trends. Yet in developing nations where actual economic data happens to be pretty scarce, using big data is the latest way to truly understand
1: what is happening in a country's economy. And this just happens to be pretty darn interesting. From satellites that track oil storage facilities in China to using cell phone data to monitor poverty across Africa, we're simply going where government figures don't.
0: Welcome to Benchmark. I'm Scott Landman, an economics editor with Bloomberg in Washington. And I'm Daniel Moss global economics writer at Bloomberg View in New York. So Dan, we take it for granted the existence of reliable economic data in our jobs. I mean, I edit our US economy coverage. We get bountiful data on employment, GDP, inflation,
1: but that's not the case everywhere, right? Corporations, governments, lenders, investors, everyone's making decisions based on assumptions about the economic trajectory. But what if those assumptions are built on data that isn't reliable? Well, that's what we're
0: going to talk about today. Before we bring in Joshua Blumenstock, a professor who does research based on big data, I wanted to talk first with a Bloomberg colleague who has taken a keen interest in this topic. Jeff Kearns is our China economy editor, and he joins us from Beijing. Jeff, it's pretty late night where you are, so I'll say Chong Hao.
2: Hi Scott, and I'll say Zao Shanghao.
0: Jeff, can you tell us a little bit about how people are using unusual sources of data to understand what's going on in China's economy since you've spent a lot of time on this topic?
2: Well, there's a lot going on. I think that it's uh, it's a really unique case because not only is this the you know, the second largest economy in the world, but it's also it's growing very quickly and on pace to become the largest. But it's so much less well understood than a lot of other countries out there. And the depth and breadth of the data are really not what folks like yourself uh, and a lot of institutional investors and economists might be used to. And that makes it really a great proving ground for new technologies to look at everything from consumer spending to crude oil storage to kind of get past the government data, which may be spotty or not trusted, and use new and independent ways of looking at these things to get past the curtain of that. And so that's something that uh, we've written a few things about and hope to do more. We're really interested in the speed of things that are being put out in real time from consumer credit card swipes to spending on mobile apps and also looking at the bigger picture of the commodities market for oil, which is China's biggest consumer of oil. And we're really excited about all the new things that are coming out.
1: So, Jeff, if I understand what you're saying correctly, China's economy is so big, yet so little understood, it's almost like it was the fertile ground just waiting for this big data test case, and this is it.
2: Well, it is... (laughs) test case is probably a good point. You raise an issue that for economists, they like to have the long series going back decades to look at very different economic eras across time. But when you are going to look at these kind of new things, whether they're, it's data coming from satellites or from internet traffic or something like that, you're not going to be able to go back very far. So there is a definite trade-off. You'll get the speed and immediacy of being able to do something very quickly but you may only be able to go back five years. So there's a real trade off for what economists like to have in terms of both the the length and the quality of the data.
0: This isn't just in China, Jeff. This is also something that's happening in the rest of the world, right?
2: That's right. The advanced and wealthier economies have generally pretty good government data that's that's trusted and can complete and measures things like wages and inflation and all of these different things that have been independently measured and checked by government specialists for, for decades or more. And when you, when you get beyond that and you go to places like Africa and see that there's maybe only in the whole cluster of African nations, maybe only a handful of countries that have this data, it maybe is more appealing to turn to an alternative like satellites that can track how much light the countries are throwing off at night to kind of serve as a proxy for small countries that may be producing very little economic data or none at all.
1: You know, Jeff, one of the things that's really cool uh, when I hear you talk about this is too often people consider the study of economics to be a marriage to dry statistics. Yet you're talking about satellites flying over car parks, you're talking about credit card swipes, you're talking about pretty hip things.
2: Well these are very hip they're also they're also very new. One of the things that's interesting about China specifically is that there's a high degree of centralization that probably people in most of the rest of the world wouldn't really recognize. Uh, for bank cards, there's really one company called Union Pay that handles everything. And beyond that, there's two platforms, WeChat and Alibaba's Alipay, where people use their phones to pay. And that's about it. You can kinda live on those things forever. And These things are very centralized, and so when you have all of the bank card information going through one provider, you can drill into all kinds of different parts of the economy like karaoke bars and uh, hot pot restaurants and see these things at a one-stop shop.
1: Last question, Jeff, before we let you go to bed, and we have to address this. Every time there's a discussion about Chinese numbers, whether they're perceived as good numbers or bad numbers, there's this cry of, oh, they're fake. Everyone knows they're made up. The government said so. Where does all this come from? My understanding is it comes from a leaked cable based on a discussion between Prime Minister Li Keqiang, then a provincial official and a U.S. diplomat 10 years ago. Where does this idea that the data is fake come from?
2: Well, that's one, that's one place, and that, that is something that, that did gain some notoriety. Uh, but it's interesting because what was being discussed in that was things that we would think of as being very old, like rail car volumes and electricity consumption. It's a really different economy now, and these new measures are kind of providing a way to add a different layer of truth to that. And also, the question of the uh, veracity of the data hasn't gone away. The government said just this year that two provinces had faked different economic uh, indicators. They didn't say exactly what or how or when or who, but this was something that the government revealed on its own. And so no less an authority than President Xi Jinping has said earlier this year that officials must be frank and forthright. With their reports. So when we look at the big data, though, it really lines up a lot with the official numbers. We don't see a big difference. We don't see that the government numbers are phony and it's really the economy is growing a lot less quickly. It's a supplemental thing instead of being a totally different story.
0: From fake data to virtually no data, let's turn to a true expert on this topic now. Joshua Blumenstock is an assistant professor at the University of California, Berkeley School of Information, and the director of the Data Intensive Development Lab. He focuses on using novel data and methods to better understand the causes and consequences of global poverty. Josh, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Josh, can you first just tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to this research
1: specialty?
3: So I was a liberal arts major in, in college, and uh, I guess I was fortunate to have spent a lot of time abroad. And growing up, I was always interested in understanding you know, why people were poor and thinking about ways that might help people in difficult circumstances. But at the same time, I always knew that my comparative advantage was working with numbers and data and doing sort of computation. So to be honest, I I sort of floundered around a little bit um, because for a long time there wasn't a real way to piece together data and quantitative modeling with the problems that were really salient in developing countries. But starting around 10 or 15 years ago, there tended to be more and more sources of really large-scale big data coming from even the poorest countries in sub-Saharan Africa, um, coming from mobile phone networks, coming from satellite imagery and so forth. And so that really created an opportunity for sort of quantitative wonks like me to think about how those data could be used in development economics research. And, And that's what I do now. The term big
1: data has taken on rather sinister connotations in the U.S., what you're saying is that in terms of studying poverty and figuring out the best way to alleviate that poverty, big data is a godsend.
3: Yeah, I mean, you guys really hit it on the head in the motivation. Just to pull a couple examples, in Angola, the last census prior to 2014 was in 1970. And in between those two censuses, the population of the country grew from roughly 6 million to roughly 25 million. And so you can imagine that if a policymaker or a researcher is relying on those data to understand the complexion of the country, um, those numbers are just totally off. I mean, when the, the jobs numbers in the US jump by a quarter of a point, the, it's sort of the shockwaves reverberate throughout the economy. This is, this is like a 350% change um, that is just not reflected in the official statistics. And so I think the idea is, as Jeff was sort of hitting on this too, not that big data would replace these national official statistics, but when you don't have other information, this can provide a supplement to fill in some of the gaps.
0: Can you tell us a little bit more about how you used cell phone data in Africa to analyze poverty or population or whatever it might be? I mean, I just, I find it really fascinating with traditional economic data. There's a lot of government surveying involved, but, you know, here, you, I guess you have vast troves of private data that are, are helping you uh, find novel ways to, to do research.
3: Yeah. And, and Jeff alluded to this as well. This is not sort of totally new. People have been using satellite data, in particular nightlight data. So this is imagery taken by satellites when it's dark to measure economic activity. And for a long time, people have known that you know cities and places that shine brightly tend to be wealthier. The problem is those methods don't actually really work that well in Africa because there are vast areas of the continent that don't have much light that's detectable from outer space at night. That doesn't mean they're abjectly poor. It just means that they're not they don't have street lamps and the sort of things that satellites pick up. And so over the last several years, myself and other researchers have been looking to for alternatives to night lights data. And so some of the work I've done shows that looking at the activity of mobile phone calls within a country, and and these are fairly precisely located geographically because of the physical layout of the mobile phone network, that that sort of information contains signs that allow you to measure with fairly high accuracy sub-regional poverty and wealth. More recently, people have used daytime satellite imagery, the sort of images you see when you look on Google Maps and you see pictures of your house that, you know, and when you do that in Africa and now the whole world is is imaged fairly frequently, um, there are also correlates of poverty and you can take fancy machine learning algorithms and apply them to the raw data and spit out on the other end something like a best guess of whether a village is um, below the poverty line or above the poverty line. So that's the poverty identification. What about the
1: next step, the alleviation? Does big data help with that as well?
3: That's a great question. And I think, to be honest, the answer is not yet, at least not really. I think right now this is really the test balloon phase of this sort of work. I mean, these data have really been around for only the last five years. And right now the research community is working with them very actively, um, trying to figure out basic things like, what can you measure accurately and doing the sort of things that the research community should do, like validate those measurements to make sure they're actually accurate. And I think, to be honest, it'll take a few years before these tools migrate into the policy community. I think already you see collaborations forming between people like myself and local governments. And uh, I work in places like Afghanistan and Malawi and Rwanda, and have had many conversations and discussions and um, are fleshing out sort of joint cooperative projects with these governments. But not yet have you seen active use of these methods to like, totally change how government policy is being made.
0: Well, that brings us to another question, which is, You know, I spent time in China. Chinese government likes to keep a very tight lid on the kind of statistics that are out there. There's even been some private numbers that have kind of disappeared over the years when they maybe cut a little too close to the bone. You know, in Africa, some of these governments aren't known for being well-functioning democracies, for that matter. Josh, are, are these governments welcoming of studies like the ones that you're doing?
3: I think the answer is always going to be it depends. By and large, the people that I've encountered are actually very receptive to these sort of methods and measurements. At least the the people that matter are. For instance, we're working with the government of Afghanistan, and they believe that they've never really had an accurate count of the number of people in the country. And for the top-level bureaucrats, this is really something that that could be valuable for them. I think at a a higher level, um, and you guys were touching on this earlier— These data also provide some sort of forced transparency in a sense. Um, So speaking of China, you know, there's studies that, use satellite imagery to measure air pollution. And what you can see is that the satellite-based measures of air pollution, which by most accounts should be fairly objective, systematically diverge from what have been reported in the local provinces. And so I guess the thought is that when people know that there are these more objective measurements out there, it creates a little bit more of a strategic tension when people want to systematically fudge those numbers.
0: Jeff, how do you see it from China? Does that make sense from from your perspective? I mean, what have you seen happen just in the last couple of years with these kinds of private statistics?
2: Well, with private statistics, your, <laughs> your observation about them being subject to higher forces is one that's noted. Uh, there have been some new and exciting numbers that have come out, and not all of them are still around. And as Dan mentioned earlier, there's also been questions about the government. But the thing about China is that it is so vast and there's so much that that this stuff is going to come together in some kind of coalescent form. Uh, the, The three big technology companies, Baidu, Alibaba, and Tencent, the last of which operates WeChat, the ubiquitous messaging and financial platform increasingly, are spitting out more and more ways to look at the consumer and mobility and all kinds of things that no one's ever been able to look at before. And so the top-down control of China kind of cuts both ways. And these companies with their you know total market share of of tracking pretty much everybody uh, cast a very wide net. And when you have a platform like Alibaba that is so deeply enmeshed in a consumer e-commerce world like this, that's bigger than anything that's ever existed, you can track things very closely and start seeing things over time that you never even would have expected. And then you layer on top of that other things like location, which the the Baidu search engine knows where you are. That way they can track who's going to shopping malls and office parks and tourist sites and things like that in real time, and they, they can create employment indexes from this, where that's a great data point in a place where the official unemployment rate, nobody really looks at because it's not very
3: reliable.
0: Well, definitely a space to watch in the future. Uh, Josh Blumenstock, Jeff Kearns, thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast.
3: Thank you, guys. Thanks, guys.
0: benchmark will be back next week and until then you can find us on the bloomberg terminal bloomberg.com our bloomberg app as well as on apple podcasts Casts, and stitcher while you're there take a minute to rate and review the show so more listeners can find us and let us know what you thought of the show you can follow me on twitter at at scott landman dan you're at moss underscore eco jeff you are at
2: jeff kern j-e-f-f-k-e-a-r-n-f
3: And Josh, you are at? J. Blumenstock, J-B-L-U-M-E-N-S-T-O-C-K. Benchmark is produced by Sarah Patterson.
0: The head of Bloomberg Podcasts is Francesca Levy. Thanks for listening. See you next time.